308. 308, that is. Phew, got a bit of a titan on our hands here. It is uh, Federico Fellini. One of the creditors, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. I mean, yeah, it's effectively taking your pick from one of the strongest filmographies in Italian cinema, uh, which goes from art cinema to neorealism. And if you're going to do him, you have to do one of the big ones, um, Eight and a Half or a Dolce Vita or any other end that, no, maybe whew, a Satyricon or a City of Women. Really, you can't miss with any of these picks. Simpson and welcome to Directors and Cut. If this is your first episode, we put filmmakers from all genres and all corners of the globe onto a huge list that covers everything from escapees of French uh, extremism, that's one I particularly like, um, and an upcoming episode is John Waters. I don't know how you characterise him, so I'm just going to say his name. John Waters is a genre all of his own. I think that's the safest bet. But after that, uh, we turn it into a lottery of directors by using a random number generator and whatever number comes out of that hat, myself and a guest host discuss them with their work through two films. And this week I have been joined by Graham of Horrified and Pop Screen Podcasts. Hello there. It's Federico Fellini this week. It is, yes, which I'm very excited about. Which is, pro- as far as sort of the titans of cinema go, this is probably our first it's our most canonical episode, he said, using a word that he likes. <laughs> and it, it, weirdly, it's probably um, the director that I've had the most experience with so far. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, When Fellini came up, I did have that moment where I thought, is this one of the canonical art house directors that Rob finds really annoying? And then I thought, no, we did La Strada on Cinema Eclectica and we all really enjoyed that. It tends to be, uh, I don't know who did it, but um, the style of French director who thinks that being moody and quiet in the inner <laughs> city is a cinematic output. I'm basically giving the middle finger to the samurai there, which I know a very small group of people will hate me for saying. I mean, the, the fun thing is when you said it's moody people in a city, I was like cycling through about 100 French directors, <laughs> belatedly realised, oh yeah, that's all of them except that guy who made Man on Dissources, isn't it? Yeah, it's a thing to be known about, but you know, it is what it is. But yeah, just looking at the things that I've seen, uh, the Strada, like you said, that was very good, I thought. Yeah. Um, Roma, which has become exceptionally hard to get hold of. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's been deleted. It's a remarkable film, Roma. Uh, yeah. And uh, Il Badoni, which we were contemplating talking about this on this episode. I've seen, um, I was on that episode where we did La Strada, and I think La Strada might be my favourite. It, it fluctuates, but I think it might well be La Strada. I'd seen mm. that. I'd seen Ivitaloni. 
Uh, I'd seen the White Shake, which is kind of wobbly but interesting as an early one. There's actually there's there's a pretty big chunk of his filmography I've seen, including the two films that we are due to review today. And I think I'm gonna like tease a bit and say my feelings towards both of them have shifted. Um, well, I've not seen well, the movies we're going to be talking about. Uh, Fellini Satyricon, because apparently you have to call it that. Oh, yeah, because there was going to be another adaptation of the Petronius novel, wasn't there? So you had to yeah. differentiate it. That was like, that was the hot new genre back in Italy in the late 60s, adaptations of plotless ancient Roman satire. Yeah, it's, it's a niche, I guess. So the one which everybody knows, Satyricon, isn't the official Satyricon. Nope. The one which absolutely nobody's heard of is. Yeah, it's well, like that That other version of Satyricon is like the Satyricon equivalent of the Ghostbusters cartoon where they've got a gorilla <laughs> uh, okay. that your parents used to rent for you because they heard that you liked Ghostbusters and you just sat and watched it bewildered. Hmm. I remember having... Uh, car from that. I know it's not related. I just remember having it. And in the harshest segue of all time in any podcast, uh, we also looked at Eight and a Half. Yes. Which is one of his big two, and the other one being the Dolce Vita. Which I reviewed for the website when it came out on Criterion UK a bit back, and that that stands up, La Dolce Vita. That is a great, great film. Um, so I don't know which one you want to do first, because neither is the both kind of obtuse, the both difficult to talk about, just the varying scales, really. Part of me wants to do eight and a half first. I realise that. For some people, that might seem that might seem a bit like throwing away the big one first. But trust us, listeners, there's a lot to talk about in Fellini Satyricon. Yeah, it's just me oh, being confused by it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Even on second view, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, eight and a half. Yeah, 1963. So I don't know where this falls in his career. Um, I think it was his first real big standout on the international scene. I don't think he'd really broke out before this. La Dolce Vita and La Strada precede it, although it's kind of interesting, really, because I think there is a career path for Italian directors where they start off doing quite realistic films and just get madder and madder and madder. And, like, (laughs) this this captures him in the middle of that stage. If you're, like me, listeners, if you're a fan of Alice Rohrwacher, you'll have seen her basically do this within three films somehow. Uh, But Fellini took a bit longer. Looking at Fellini as a director and what this is, this is basically his his crisis as a as a director. Mm. He, he just lost his mind entirely. <laughs> yes, Marcello Mastroani is effectively a substitute for him. Yeah, and it's set. It's so many things at the same time. It's fantasy and reality. It's a making of a film which. Eventually, doesn't happen, and it's also the film in question. Yeah, um, it's a relationship drama, and then the relationship becomes the movie, mm-hmm. and there's a big musical number at the end. Yeah, and and a spaceship. I think it's important to uh, emphasize the spaceship. Yeah, so it's it's dense. There's a lot going on in there. I think for, for all that I'm looking forward to talking about this, I figure that the best review that is imaginable. 
uh, of eight and a half comes from my friend Ollie, who I rewatched this with. Uh, he hadn't seen it before, and at the end, he turned to me and said, "So when was this made?" I said, "63." And he said, "Films haven't come on much since then, have they?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, I mean, there's that old line, isn't it, that it seems like every lazy critic comes up with, they won't be allowed to make it today. Yes, not normally it's used to refer to something that's highly racist, but in this case <laughs> we're talking about it in terms of something that's really great. It's so hard to grasp, though, I mean, like, so many strands to it. For one, it's a lot of people fawning around Masterani, which honestly, if he was around, I would myself, male or female, I don't care. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He's a handsome, handsome man. Um, it starts off with Guido, who, as you've said correctly, is, is a Fellini stand-in played by mm. Masterani. He's in a traffic jam on his way to work, and he has this extraordinary oh, panic yeah. attack where he, he gets out of his car. It's very similar to the video to Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., um, and he starts floating. He dreams of being float, sort of floating above the beach, but still tethered to earth. And this anxiety is driven by his new film, which he's not convinced he can make. He has a, a critic on set who is giving him detailed notes about how terrible his work is. Who, <laughs> what a guy, by the way. What a great part Who would do that to themselves, though? Seriously. <laughs> oh. Uh, he's he's meeting his friends. He's going back through his life into his childhood, trying to get inspiration, and ultimately is coming up with nothing. But and I think what's crucial about it is that even though Guido is completely blocked, everywhere he goes is really fascinating to watch for us. He can't marshal it into one film, but somehow Fellini can. Yeah, I think. Um... Uh, Sidney Lumet might have been inspired by this a lot. Mm. Um, just in the execution of the dialogue, because I've heard um, readings of this that m- maybe it's better to watch the uh, English language version. Oh, okay. Because you can actually keep up with the the dialogue because this isn't one of these um, two-hour French Italian uh, movies where nobody speaks and it's all moody and esoteric. Yeah, we're not doing Antonioni this week. <laughs> no. This is an Italian movie where everybody just cannot shut up and they're constantly <laughs> talking over each other. And there's a bit towards the end where, again, I think it's sort of segues into dreams. And mm. Is it the movie or isn't it the movie where he gets a gun out of his pocket and shoots himself in the head? Because at that bit, he's just getting bewildered by everybody talking to him, just literally everybody. And the movie's kind of like that throughout, really. It's just so chatty. Yes. Such a chatty movie. So this is, is this the first time you've seen it, Rob? It is, yes. It's the second time I've seen it. The first time was, uh, I think it would be closing in on 20 years ago now. Um, And it was a season of Italian cinema that was on at the Tyneside Cinema, which I I vaguely remember vividly. It introduced me to Visconti, it introduced me to Sorrentino, Antonioni, tons of great directors that I wouldn't have seen otherwise Um, and I saw this there and I saw La Dolce Vita there and I loved La Dolce Vita straight off the bat this I had a bit of a problem with because my objection and I'm raising this because I will say it now I do not quite understand why I thought this in retrospect my objection is that it took Guido too seriously 
that's how I felt. I think because when there is a film about filmmaking in like the English-speaking world, whether it's British or American or wherever, um, it tends to be quite a barbed satire. Or even if it isn't, it's something like Tim Burton's Ed Wood, where for all it's very affectionate towards uh, the central character, he is still making crap movies. But there seems to be a general understanding in Eight and a Half that Guido, while not a great person, should get to make his movie and that it's important that he should get it finished. And I found that a bit weird when I first watched it. And there's a degree of that to it, yeah. Uh, it, it feels a lot like a Last Chance Saloon for him as well. Mm. There's many references throughout it where he says, if you don't make this, your career is basically over. Yeah. Which is, is curious when you look at it with the, uh, the benefit of hindsight, because around this time, you know, uh, <laughs> he was... He's, he's in his pomp, it. yeah. Yeah. So is this movie him taking himself too seriously because he's built this reputation up in his head that this is who the great uh, Fellini is. Is it a movie where it's like imposter syndrome? It's like mm. it's basically a therapy session as a movie, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what jumped out at me watching it the second time, because this time round, I really loved it. And I think part of it is like, there's a slight difference in culture now, which is that when I watched it 20 years ago, uh, Hollywood and that model of filmmaking was still a big thing and it felt subversive to take a few pot shots at it. Whereas now it has filmmaking in general just has this absurdly diminished cultural status and everyone watches terrible box set TV instead. So it's actually quite <laughs> refreshing to have a film that accepts that if Guido can get it together enough to make this film, it might actually be really good. But I think you're right. I think that the meat of both the film and the humour in the film comes from those trips back to his childhood and those explorations of who he was before he started making films. The really weird little asides as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit, I can't remember the name of the character, but it's a woman who lives on the beach and they keep on giving her money and she shows, he shows the shoulders and she does some dancing. Of course Federico Fellini remembers growing up in a village with a municipal prostitute. Of course he does. That (laughs) that just makes everything make sense. Some bits as well. uh, There's a bit later on where I was so confused because Mm. it it seemed like he had a harem uh, of people and uh, he's having a bath and all of his whims have been catered to. Mm-hmm. And then there's reference to, is that my going to be in the movie? So yes. The sense of humour, I think, is just playing with the audience, whether it's real or imagined or something in between. I think there's an element of that. And I think one of the other things you have to remember is that Fellini was working at a time when the idea of psychoanalysis was, it, it wasn't new but it was still fresh enough that it would be an interesting source of comedy. Like That's Woody Allen's career, basically. Um, And I think the idea of taking this kind of capital G, capital A great artist and revealing him to be kind of insecure and like having shitty attitudes towards women is 
pretty fresh and interesting in that context. And it, it, it feels fresh and interesting watching it because he explores it with such energy and with such, despite what I said earlier about my first viewing, with such a lack of vanity. I mean, if Mastrani is Fellini in this, he is tearing strips off himself. Um, but yeah, it's not a particularly generous um, adaptation of himself, if that's the, mm. the phrase, phrase you want to use, because he doesn't have patience at anybody. Yeah. He surrounds himself with, with people who effectively want to see him fail. Like his, mm. his, a producer effectively says it to his face on, on numerous occasions. Uh, yeah. Any slight distraction that prevents him from doing the movie, uh, like the party scenes, like the scene with the... Um, the person who supposedly read minds. <laughs> yes. Uh, his friend with his young girlfriend. His young Gal- girlfriend with his Barbara Steele, no less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool casting when you think of her yeah. as, the hor- as the horror lady. Um, having his, his mistress in a, another hotel. Mm. It's, yeah, he, he paints himself as kind of an ass. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there is still that, romanticism in its view of filmmaking, even if it questions whether Guido is really like cut out for it. And I think that the scenes where he has to build that extraordinary huge spaceship set that he just decides to make on a whim, they have that wonderful push-pull where you think, this is ridiculous, he's just building this enormous thing on a whim. And then you also think, God, that's impressive though. That must be great to have that. As it's the old Orson Welles quote about filmmaking being the biggest train set a boy could have. Because <laughs> effectively, the, the setup of that is they make, he's making a, a scene or a movie, I can't remember which it was, uh, about, Ma, about Mars. And he's got mm. the, the things that you overlay, and he's got this massive structure behind it, so it looks like the people are walking up this structure behind it. Yeah. Uh, somebody says, why don't you just use paintings and map paintings? And there's a reference, oh, you don't do that. It's not the 1950s anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the easy line on Fellini is that he, he is a guy who was defined by excess. And in some of his films, I think that's fair comment. But I think this is very self-aware about the excess. And it manages to do that thing that you never see done, which is excess with a light touch you know, excess that is also witty and self-aware and a lot of other things that pure excess isn't. Yeah. Well, the thing I really engage with about it, like you were saying earlier about the movies, about the filmmaker, analysing the the psyche of the filmmaker, mm. it, it's kind of like silent cinema, how you see how these um, these tropes, these ideas in movies began yeah. before they became tropes or the cynicism was attached to him. Like you think of a movie about a filmmaker, you think it's all nerdy and neurotic and yeah. quite urban New York style, all because of Woody Allen's effect. Yeah, basically, yes. Uh, and to see something which is completely removed from that, which is about the, the filmmaker, the self-aware filmmaker who doesn't believe he's got it, who's got all these self-confidence problems. But it also has a sense of Alan and style, which I don't think this type of movie has now, when you think of it as sort of like an overarching thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that they dropped that, really. It's interesting, yeah. I was trying to think of what it was that misled me about the film initially. And I think one of the things is when you watch an American comedy about filmmaking, 
that is a comedy that that's like a workplace comedy you know it's yeah. about an industrial process of making a film whereas the Italian industry, although I think they have more big hitters than us, but as an industry, it's quite similar to the British industry, which is that even at its peak, it is held together with bits of string. So you can't really make that comedy about the tyrannical producer trying to give the director contradictory notes or whatever standard filmmaking comedy trope you have in America, because that's not part of the Italian system, that kind of industrial quality. Yeah, it just seems like it's such a messy way to produce movies as well. I know it's not done like it's depicted in this movie anymore, but like mm. I say, it seems like everything that they do is flying by the seat of the pants. Like every... It's an exaggeration, but an exaggeration oh, yeah. has to have some truth to it. There's no smoke about fire, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just little bits as well, like uh, there's constant threads throughout it of actors turning up and they've not been casting anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> again it's got to be smoke or fire there and, and i think as you say the the pleasure of it is that you can never quite tell whether this is all the projection of guido's anxiety you know there is one moment early on which might be when i realized oh yeah i misjudged this film this is really good but when he's talking to that critic character yeah. and his friend who's going out with Barbara Steele uh, calls him from across the field and he turns and as the camera turns with him, the critic isn't there. Now, when it cuts to a different angle, you realise that the critic was just sat further down and the camera passed over his head. But there is a moment where you think, Hang on, did that guy disappear? Is that just like the <laughs> devil on Guido's shoulder? Is it just his anxiety? It, as as you said earlier, it is full of things like that where you you get the sense that Guido can no longer differentiate between his own kind of anxiety dreams and what's happening in his career. Yeah, the term is the rug pulls from beneath your feet, but in this, I don't think you ever really know where the rug is. There ain't a rogue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think the interesting thing, though, is the inclusion of the religion. That was a bit of a left turn that I wasn't quite ex- expecting. I, I don't really know what it is because there's a character as well related to that. I don't know who he is or what he's supposed to be, but he'll con- constantly be asking a Guido these existential questions. Yes. And then he reflects it. Do you think Italy is fundamentally a Catholic nation? It, it's. I don't really know what the intent is there. Like the same with religious stuff. He gets a, a uh, I can't remember what the religious role is, but a, a figurehead of the, the church. He asks one of them and asks him questions. And then when he gets the questions, he just says, oh, there's a bird. And you hear the sound it's making. It's like it's crying. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a lot to unpack, effectively. The impression I got from that scene with the bird song was that the priest had been brought on in the same way that... Do you remember that scene in Hail Caesar by the Coen brothers where um, Josh Brolin's working on this big religious epic and he gets four priests in to make sure that its depiction of Jesus is theologically sound? Vaguely, yeah. Um it's one of my favourite scenes in that film, largely because I was helping my mum study for a theology degree at the time, and I could recognise every single pointless <laughs> argument they make as something that happened like in the early church. Um, but my feeling was that he was brought on as an advisor 
and then like you say it's sort of porous you realize that guido is to a large degree driven by religious angst himself Mm -hmm. so you think well it's not quite as simple as he woke up and it was all a dream, but there's there's an element where the real people here are behaving like the voices in Guido's head in a way that's really destabilising. It's, it's constantly making arguments and undermining the arguments within the same mm. scenes. He loves his wife, but he just loves women in general. Yes. He's, he's a Catholic Italian, but he's very, very decadent and over-sexualised. Mm. Uh, he wants to make intelligent films, but he ends up making films about his childhood. There's so many conflicts. And space rockets. Oh, and space rockets, yeah. <laughs> it's a film which is constantly undermining itself, and just thinking about how the script was put together, it gives me anxiety nightmares, basically. Because <laughs> it's so, so many things. It'd be like writing a thesis, just trying to keep track of it. And it's basically what was happening to Fellini himself at this point, which is extraordinary. I can imagine going through this and many years later, you might be able to see the funny side and write a comedy about it. But Fellini's motivation for making this was he literally realised he had to put a film into production next year or all of his favourite collaborators would be unemployed. And he didn't have a single idea. And that's where this comes from. That's quite uh, ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> He's made, well, you know, people have done it in the time since. I think normally when someone makes a film because they don't have a single idea, you can tell in the finished product, though. That's the difference. Yeah. The ambition of ideas. If somebody has an idea to make a movie, but they have no idea, so they'll make a movie about not having an idea, mm. they don't tend to have an 80 foot structure. <laughs> in the centre of it. Yes. <laughs> Which, it just goes to show, maybe his position in Italian cinema there was kind of untouchable at the time. It's really hard to think of anyone else who could have got away with it, isn't it? I mean, the only comparison I can think of is when uh, Buster Keaton crashed that train and almost killed his career with the general. Because mm. don't think anybody would be allowed to do that just on a whim. Yes. That's one of the great examples of the, oh, you couldn't make that nowadays film, isn't it? Nowadays, if you try and kill a movie star, people get upset about that. (laughs) Yeah. So um, any any close? I mean, you you basically set your stall out here. You did love it in the second viewing, but is there anything else? I think the ending, I think was a big part in how my feelings shifted. As you say, there was the dance at the ending, which is it manages somehow to square the circle of the film's attitudes towards filmmaking, where on the one hand, this film isn't going to be made. That's terrible. On the other hand, hasn't this been funny? Let's have a celebration over the collapse of everything. And it's it's such a contradictory ending, but I think when you can pull off that kind of... I don't like very happy endings, and I don't like real downer endings. I like endings that send you out still sifting through how you felt about that and this is one of the all-time great examples i actually agree really um you get films that you have an opinion on immediately mm. and, and they're fine but i don't think they really linger yeah. in memory whereas this I'm, I'm i i really liked it but the the, the depths of my appreciation of it i'm not really ever really got to grips with yet so this is the sort of movie that i'm going to be thinking about for weeks and weeks 
And yeah, definitely. I, I, I yeah. really like that about it, you know, because it, well, it's just giving you a lot to chew on, really. It's a movie about the anxiety of filmmaking, which isn't obnoxious, which mm. has a sense of style and elan. It's it's not alienating, but it is alienating. It's it's just so many things that contradict itself. It's a very sympathetic, merciless satire. Yes. Yeah. It's it's so dense. I can see mm. it becoming a favourite movie down the line, maybe in a second watch, but on the first, it's just kind of sensory overload of all of these things thrown at you at the same time. All these beautiful Italian women, all of this satire. It's yes. too much. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, as we've said, Fellini is, I think maybe only Ken Russell can challenge him for the title of the king of the too much movie. The only film I've seen like this, I can't remember if I've got the right one. Uh, it was in a Ken Russell BFI box set. You did one, I did the other. Oh, yes, yeah. I think it was the Elgar movie. Yeah. No, 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 no. The Debussy movie. Oh, yeah. Which was another one. It starred uh, Oliver Reed, and it was effectively an artist movie making art in a documentary making of and the actual real-life movie. It's a super obscure movie now, outside that box set, but... There's nothing else like it, really. It's such a... You have to be so brave to even attempt something like this. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, really. The more I talk about it, the more I like it, and that's always the sign of a good movie, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. In a previous episode, I mentioned that we have to juggle around the recordings a little bit because sometimes people aren't available. So this is why the section that I'm about to uh, segue into doesn't sound the same, doesn't have the same people. And also while I'm on the sound, I do apologise for the audio quality of today's episode. Technology defeated me. Before I jump to the segment which was recorded as part of the uh, Larry Cohen episode, which you can get exclusively on Patreon, link in the description, it also features uh, Graham, who's on this episode, and Cliff from the Devil Times 5 podcast. Before I hand back over to the clip where we pick the next director, which will be coming on the upcoming Patreon episode, um, please do give us a rating on the Apple Store your local Apple Store of choice, which is a weird way to phrase it, rating a review on there. Or if you listen on Spotify, please give us a rating on there. Also, um, it helps people find the podcast. Um, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You can also share us on social media. Anything that you can do to help get more eyes and ears on this podcast, I would be eternally grateful. But yes, let's let's head back to the past to pick what we're going to be doing in the future. I'm not going to do a horrible, tortured pun to segue from that into the middle bit, where we pick what we're doing, what we're going to do next, because that's Graham's job. He's the, he's the, the master of terrible <laughs> puns. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm uh, saying that with love, by the way. You know, he, he does enjoy his puns. Uh, I do, yes. So, so Graham now has to help you pick, has to help pick the next director, because Rob told you to. <laughs> There we go. We've got... Yes, quality work. Um, 401 directors on the list. 
Yes, a space odyssey. So the next one is going to be director number 190. That's 190. 190 is Li Chang Dong. Oh, no. It's... <laughs> 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 it doesn't mean I've got to be a fan of all of them. I mean, come on. What one of the things that I do love about this show is that Rob would make the worst poker player of all time. <laughs> um, the reason why I say or not, about my memory was right, is he's the director of uh, Burning. Burning, a film which has two scenes that are about as good as you would get in an OK Claire Denis movie, and everyone lost their mind about it. Yeah. Uh, so on the last episode, you mentioned uh, you, you was, what were you say you were talking about, and you said, "Yeah, because I didn't like burning either." Um, was oh, is it drive my car? Oh, but that's not got drive anything my to do car. With him, yeah, it? the Murakami connection. Oh, oh, right. Okay, fine. Wondered what the connection was there. Um, this mm. might result in me uh, watching this again, burning again. So. <laughs> He's done. He's done a lot of uh, a lot of other things. He's done poetry. I think that was where I first heard of him. Uh, there's some of his early films that have a particularly strong following. Secret Sunshine. I think a lot of people like. Yeah. Um, I think that got him on the, the radar of a lot of people. I think it was one of the big first Korean uh, Criterion movies. Uh, I would definitely like to go back to one of the very early ones, just you know, to see whether he was always like this. Um, I guess the elevator pitch for him really is misanthropic, uh, social realist Korean director. That's kind of his vibe. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I I can't really pin him down because all of the ones I've seen, I've just mainly come out of thinking that was really boring. (laughs) Well, social realism for you, Graham. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess. (sighs) Not not to not to colour any expectations to upcoming social realist directors, but yeah, <laughs> kind of find. But I want you know what I I want to like Li Changdong. He is so loved by so many people whose opinions I respect very much. That it does slightly bother me that I have never clicked with his work. So I'll I'll be on the next one. Is one thing, even if it's just for moral support. <laughs> okay, okay. Wrong. Before Christ, after Fellini. The, the, the movie that I was really, really regretting talking about because it's, well, it's, it's everything. Um, <laughs> 1969's. Fellini Satyricon. Again, remember, we've got to stress that because Satyricon are not probably a porn movie. No one yeah, I think that it, era. if you say Satyricon, everyone's going to say, oh yeah, the famous movie Satyricon directed by, hang on, let me quickly look this up, uh, but Fellini Satyricon. Yeah, that's the Fellini one. Yeah, um, this is a ridiculous movie. Um, I think it's a first <laughs> century uh, book by Petronius. Mm. Um, the name, I'm assuming, is the entomology, oh, that word, is the origin of the word satire. Yes, yes it is, yeah. Um, and what it is, is um, its story on paper is about two gay lovers fighting over a, a, a younger lad that they both want. Yes, and which I'm 
I've read bits of satiric on it. It's very hard to understand because large parts of the manuscript have been lost. But um, yeah, I, I don't. That it is a very, very homoerotic novel, but I don't remember that being the backbone of it, that plot line. Yeah, but that's the essence of it. And from mm. that, well, it's just a series of episodes um, effectively satirizing the Roman Empire, uh, talking about the end of the empire and the arrogance and the greed that was happening at that time and the, and the downfall of these sorts of characters and hit these historical figureheads. First off, let me just say, delighted that someone is sticking it to the Roman Empire at last. You know, th- <laughs> those guys have got away with it for far too long. Apparently, it's one of these, we're satirising the past because the past is the present. But, yeah, I don't think the 60s were like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know Italy was wild, but <laughs> no. <laughs> And it it is very easy, isn't it? It, it, Like, the late years of the Roman Empire were one of those areas of history, like Weimar Germany, which always fuel really shitty conservative takes, which is like, um, oh, well, when everyone gets that gay, there's bound to be a major social collapse in (laughs) economy. What's that? Gayness crushes societies. And it's like, I don't think Fellini is doing that, but... Equally, I don't know, I can imagine it being read that way. I think smart conservatives like to say that they're protesting against decadence, uh, which is how you say gayness if you've been to Oxbridge. Um, but I don't know, uh, it, it, it is very much in that cultural stereotype of, oh, the Roman Empire got so fat and indolent that in the end the Visigoths took over, whereas actually, hilariously, the Roman Empire collapsed shortly after they adopted Christianity. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that's not in there, is it? No. It's, it, it's quite a... I mean, this is just goes to show how much uh, power I think Fellini probably would have had in that era, because this... This is no shrinking violet of a movie. God, no, no. Um, it it effectively takes place within a walled city, mainly at night. There's an earthquake. There's, I don't know how you describe it, but one of the leaders, the leader who's basically like a satire of all Roman leaders in one human being. Uh, Uh, Trimalcion, isn't it? Yeah, he he seems like he has ego problems to me. I don't know about you. Like, he imagines he's a great philosopher, but he's copied it off the, a poet. And when the poet questions him about it, he says, throw him in the oven. It's like, okay, that's yes. reasonable. <laughs> um, I don't know how you describe another saying. It's like a throng of bodies. Um, mm. In any other context, it'd be an orgy, but it's not a se- it's, it's the, In a movie, this homoerotic is the least sexual thing. It's strange, that, isn't it? Yeah, I find often with Fellini's movies, everything is very sexually charged, but there is very rarely any actual sex. I'm struggling to think of a Fellini-directed sex scene. Um, no, really, from my experience. Mm. But yeah, that scene is just a, it's literally a field full of naked bodies. Yes. And it's the least sexual thing in this movie. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at queer cinema during like the late 60s, early 70s, it's in a very, very primitive state. Like a couple of years from now, you've got Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and people reacted to the same-sex kiss in that like a bomb had gone off in the theatre. 
and this, d- despite the fact that Fellini was a, a very heterosexual director, like if you could, if you could quantify heterosexuality, he'd be close to the top. I think he was extremely straight. But I mean, just, just look at Eight and a Half. He, he had yeah. all of the women, you know. Yes. <laughs> But I think as an exploration of homoeroticism and gay desire, this actually holds up pretty well. Like you could see this coming from a a modern queer cinema director like Bertrand Mandico, and you would think, yeah, that works. Hmm. Uh, I don't really know how to perceive this, though, because, I mean, uh, apparently reading the Wikipedia, so how how much truth is in this, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you have to use the Wikipedia bit here, I think. Um, he was quite ill, um, Fellini. Okay. Uh, and he was reading this book, and it sort of stuck the imagination in him. He wanted to do something. Mm-mm. So the reason why it's episodic is a natural reaction to the fact that there's so much of it missing. And yes. he, he's using that as a, as a metaphor for historical storytelling, isn't it? how so much of it is in paper but it's so all disintegrating yeah so things go missing and interpretation has to be made interpretation which nobody has the right answer to and you get this really weird final scene where it just sort of cuts to black mid-sentence and cuts to a, a piece of architecture fading away and it's interesting that because it's it's a very difficult idea but i think i would like the film more if it was more overt in that. I think at the level he's pitched it, it's quite hard to tell without that information whether this is a brilliant satire on the futility of knowing historical truth or whether he's just bad at telling the story. (laughs) I mean, watching it, you think, wow, cocaine was rife. Um, (laughs) It is nonsense, really. There's no logic to anything. It's just, uh, I would read the whole article on Wikipedia after watching mm. it and thought, I can't remember that happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me so, too. There's, and there's then, and then, and stuff. then. It's, it's that sort of storytelling, sort of improvisational storytelling. Is it? And then, and then, and then, and then. Yes. And then there was a hermaphrodite, and then the died, and the sun, and then the fought a gladiator, and then. What? Minotaur turns up and just has a fight with someone that happens. Yeah, it's sort of movie which could be quite upsetting to a lot of people. Yes, yeah. Because when you think of a lot of people, when they think of movies, they have a very rigid sort of idea of the three act structure uh, beginning, middle, and end, hero, Mm. bad guy, all of this stuff. I don't think any rule, like traditional cinema rule, is paid attention to here. No. such a wild rogue of a movie. And it's interesting, when I first watched it, I connected to that feeling a great deal because I think when I first watched it, it would be around the time that you had all of those sort of bad Hollywood sword and sandal epics like Troy and King Arthur and uh, things yeah. coming out. And I was just sick of seeing history, ancient history that didn't get across the feeling of how weird things were back then. Because that's what I always get when I read about things that happened thousands of years ago. You just think, oh, this is a completely different world to us. And I liked that it had that. This time I was a bit less uh, fond of it. And I think watching it on the back of eight and a half, I can figure out why. Okay. Crucially, unlike eight and a half, unlike 
Mastrani and La Dolce Vita, unlike um, uh, Giulietti Messina in La Strada, there isn't a performance here that cuts through Fellini's aesthetic, and I think he needs that. It, it's using that on my um, that line of thought that I had there, but it not really paying attention to any of the rules. It, mm. For a lot of the time, it's a movie that you can only really approach or appreciate through the aesthetics. Yeah. And I don't want to call it sexual politics because I don't really think it has any. It's just Yeah, it's it's kind of the sexual politics of I guess nihilism. It's a very nihilistic movie. It's a nihilistic mm. and apocalyptic movie because again, going back to the set work, it's it doesn't look of this world. No. Which again goes into what you say about it. something so long ago we have no relationship to it we have no point of reference to it yeah so maybe he was working with that and went completely in on this idea of ancient history being so other and alien that that's the only way it could really be presented yeah i think that's a big part of it and i think that's why i will cut it a lot more slack than other sort of movies about decadent romans like you know there's always a bit in a cecil b demille movie where they show you how awful the emperor was it's obviously not that i don't think he's doing this because he wants to draw a parallel between then and now although i don't think he minds if people draw that but there is also a very deep awareness of how the roman empire is just incomparable to modern morality in a lot of ways yeah it is the same with ancient greece as well by the end it's yeah so alien I guess it's the best way to say. I've always and in the case of see a film about Theodora, the Byzantine Empire, but that would uh, the Byzantine Empress, but that would be almost impossible because it's like when it's ancient Rome or ancient Greece, people at least have some cliches that they know about it. Whereas the Byzantine <laughs> Emperor, you have to tell people all that bollocks like the first time they sit down, and it's just incomprehensible. The one thing you can't avoid when you're doing an ancient Greek movie is the one stereotype that everybody always avoids is, avoids is it was very gay time. I mean, it was, the Olympics that did it in the nude, for God's sake. You, you tell me that that was, you know, all above board. No. How shenanigans, does that not come back, by the way? I mean, I'm not a big sports fan, but I would absolutely watch Naked Olympics. That would be great. <laughs> I'm assuming it exists. It's on the internet somewhere. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know about Satyricon. The first time I watched it, I was just overwhelmed by it. And I don't think it's the sort of film that familiarity makes it easier to deal with. It's Familiarity makes it more confusing, if anything. It's sort of an accomplishment, isn't it? It is at the very least a film that it's impossible to be over-familiar with it. You're never going to get to that stage where it's just... Oh, the hermaphrodite prophet's dying in the desert again. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't even start... I mean, a movie like this, you start at a point where you think, oh, I know what happens here. The story's just begun. Yeah. It starts, and it feels like we've missed about half an hour that's, that's just occurred. But again, that probably goes back to the missing passages from the original mm. text. There's no way to connect with this. It's just so aloof. It starts with someone calling the sea a whore. And you think, well, yeah, we've started at 11 there, I guess. 
I mean, maybe, I mean, I said that about horror movies before. I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Chilean one-shot horror movie. Oh, oh um, Silent House, was it? Yeah, was yeah, that's yeah. it. I think it hit full back at about the 20-minute mark, and I thought, where am I supposed to go from here? Yeah. It, it's like any storytelling, I think. Uh, escalation is something that you take your time with. There's a particular danger to it, I think, in a, a less narratively driven film like this, where if I'm sitting down to watch a, a non-narrative film, I'm happy for it not to have a three-act structure, but I need to be reassured that it's going somewhere. Yeah. I need to have a feeling that it is building and all being some sort of rhythm, even if it's not the sort of Robert McKee three-act structure. And... Like you say, Fellini is deliberately rejecting that here. I don't think it's a mistake, but I think it is still pretty hard to love. Yeah. I mean, even the little basic things, like there's no character development. Mm. Uh, there's no char- there's very little characterization except uh, characters with goals. Yeah. That seems to be the, the driving force behind a lot of them. Everybody, every, yeah. Everybody dies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and this is sort of there in the book, and that's part of the satirical point of it, where it's like, you know, nobody learns everything. Everyone's venal, everyone's corrupt, and everyone just comes out of the other side of it having learned nothing. But yeah, I think it's hard to really read this film as a satire because it is so faithful to the points that Petronius is making. And, you know, watching a repeat of Have I Got News for You on Dave can be pretty bewildering because <laughs> you don't remember what everyone's going on about. So watching something based on something done in, like, the first century AD or whatever it is, is you're going to be completely at sea. Um, a thing we used to do on a previous podcast, Cinema Eclectica, is we watched a movie and we said, this is something that you might like to watch alongside it. Yes. And the closest I could even imagine for this is hard to be a god. But beyond that... That's good. Beyond that, there's nothing. There's nothing even remotely relatable to this. Martin Scorsese cited it as an influence on Gangs of New York, which I always found interesting. Wow. (laughs) It's almost hard to see that because Gangs of New York, for a lot of people... Not me, I love Gangs of New York, but for a lot of people it has the opposite problem where the characters' arcs are too like simple and graspable. But I, I do sort of get how it has that same feeling that the past might as well be an alien planet. Yeah, that's probably the closest we're going to get hard to be a god about. Mm. That's a difficult film as well, but I think there's more to it. Yeah, the past there. is literally an alien planet in Hard to Be a God, of course. Yeah, and everybody literally dies in that. It's yes. You know, I feel like I should watch that again. It's a good movie. Uh, it's weirdly, for all no one has ever called it an easy watch. It's weirdly hard to take your eyes off, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's quite mesmeric. This is too, but I think yeah, there's just something which uh, Alexei German did, uh, which uh, I don't think Fellini does here. Yeah, I would agree. And from this point onwards in his career, I mean, there's a few ones like Roma, um, Amacord, which I think is a very good film, but mostly it just gets bigger and bigger. The sets get bigger, the cameos get bigger, the performances get bigger, and 
he just loses that balance that you saw in eight and a half where he can do excess but he can do quite sort of subtle incisive stuff alongside it yeah having a foot in realism i think is is mm. where fellini is at his best yeah where he's telling stories about what life is like in italy like the strada i think does that that beautifully it captures a real image of what italy is really like and the characters yeah. and the people and what is going on there it is social realism but i don't i think italian social realism is kind of a bit hard to pin down really it's social realism made by someone who isn't deliberately excluding the weird or funny bits of reality which is always my fundamental objection with social realism it is a very very partial vision of the real world so yeah i think that's a my fellini is at his best there's still a few yeah. big ones that I, I do want to catch the Dolce Vita, that seems to be. The sort of movie which inspired Paolo Sorrentino like, so much. Definitely, he seems yes. He got a career out of that movie. Yes. But yeah, I really like Fellini, but um, it's the question that you've got to ask. It's this conversation that he is one of the all-time great directors. I'm not sure he is. I think he is, but... With with the caveat that once he started being called that, he was on a ticking clock. You can look at the reviews of some of his late period films like this, or like The Voice of the Moon, which I did a written review on the site for, and you find that people back then were much more forgiving about it than people are now. It seems like... I mean, it's almost a cliche to critique late Fellini for being over the top because everyone agrees that it was. But back then, everyone was everything was received as the next work of genius from the master. And I think that's always a very dangerous spot for a filmmaker to be in. Yeah, that's where the old Fellini-esque uh, idea came from, isn't it? When yeah. he believed his own height. Then again, it's hard not to when everybody's telling you you're the next great thing. And I think maybe, you know, part of believing in your own hype and believing that you can do anything part of that is also the process that leads you to making a movie about not having an idea for a movie you know he got great (laughs) things out of it as well he really he really really did but yeah that's that's fellini it's been an interesting one (laughs) it has in half yeah uh yeah so coming up on the next episode before we jump into the what we've been watching recently mm. around this and we've got John Waters so it's kind of very spiritual theme there between the two episodes yes. where there's two directors who are quite um, evasive and hard to pin down a bit of excess yes a bit more of excess on your next episode of uh, directors uncut they're both unexpectedly camp as well, but for very, very, very different reasons. Yeah. Fellini was so straight that it became camp, wasn't it? It's like yeah, <laughs> after a while you're so straight that it just loops around the other side. <laughs> I think I'm going crazy. You are. And me too. It's not the worst thing to be. composed a poem, a poem of the sleepless night, 
beyond the petals and once furious wings the air gasps at its fading shadow That's it. Um, so yeah, movies are, are whatever that we've been watching recently that uh, we want to draw attention to. Have anything? Yeah, I recently uh, made a trip to the cinema, which I haven't been able to do as much as I wanted to this year for a number of reasons, but... I decided I am absolutely going to go out to see this because its scheduled DVD release is never. Oh, okay. Are you aware of a film on current cinema release that will never be released on DVD? I'll give you a clue. It's not Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> um, I don't know, really. Uh, probably uh, We Reciprocals. Yes! It's Memoria, the new Rapper Pong Rear Seth Kills film, uh, which is his first made outside his native Thailand. It stars Tilda Swinton, and the, the current strategy is to just keep it in cinemas forever and never have it released on DVD. So once you watch it, it will fade in your memory until you are as confused and mental as all of the characters in this. Um, I really love this film. I, it is bananas and i had some concerns about how we seth Cole's uh particular type of dialogue is going to sound once i can actually understand it do you know what i mean once i can yeah yeah not yeah. because certain rhythms of different languages are very very different it yes translates poorly and I think one of the ingenious things he did with this is he, he made the film in Colombia. He was always going to make the film in Colombia, but he wanted Swinton to be in it because he felt like he could make a film about a foreigner in Colombia, even if it was a foreigner from a different country to him, more effectively than he could make a film about Colombians. Uh, but as it is, everything is so disturbingly slightly off in Memoria that it doesn't matter where they're from. It is maybe the closest thing he's done to a horror film in some ways. Mm. There is always a lot of supernatural stuff around the edges of Seth Cole's films, but this is the only one that has contextually justified jump scares, uh, which is <laughs> well, a new one for him, I know. Yeah, he's, he's quite laid back, so it's, I don't know how that would work. <laughs> well, it works because Swinton's character is tormented by a real-life medical condition that the director also suffers from that has the amazing name of exploding head syndrome. Oh, wow. But it's not quite as alarming as it sounds, but it is still quite debilitating. Basically, when you're about to drop off to sleep, there is this sudden bang, a sudden massive thud that wakes you up and the first scene is just that a long scene of Swinton asleep and suddenly there's a bang and she wakes up and that seems quite simple but of course you've heard the bang as well so does that mean that the drama is putting you inside her head that's why I initially thought 
or does it mean that this is an actual noise? And there are, in fact, scenes where it seems like other people and even animals can hear it. There's a great scene where she's, it is completely inexplicable, but she's just followed around a square by a stray dog that she just cannot shake off. The dog finds are absolutely fascinating. I would love to know how they filmed this. Did they just put some sausages in Swinton's coat <laughs> pocket? Um, well, I mean, all, all creatures, no matter what species you're from, find Tilda Swinton fascinating. Maybe can't that's help it. it, yes. And it just gets weirder and weirder. She goes to, um, for help, she goes to a sound engineer who creates a replica of the sound she hears in her head that she can play to other people. And uh, he gives her that recording. She goes back to thank him, and she's told that they never had an employee by that name. She has a a sister who is suffering from a mysterious respiratory illness. This was made before the COVID pandemic, although I did think going in that COVID in general just feels like it could be in an Apichat Pongwira Seth Cole movie. (laughs) It's just one of those things. Um, But she thinks that it might happen because she was cursed that there's been like an archaeological dig and she might have disturbed something that she wasn't meant to. There is a great moment where Swinton is, is shown a human fossil and an archaeologist goes, so do you think it's male or female? And you think, is the archaeologist talking to Swinton about the fossil, or is she talking to the fossil about Swinton? It's very hard to be certain. It is a completely destabilizing film. It has some moments that put you in the moment more than any film I've seen in years. And it has an ending that people are just going to have arguments about forever. I think it's <laughs> great. It's so good. I think this might be the the one to finally break me Apichat Weir Asephical Duck. Perhaps, yeah. Have have you seen anything of his before? Uh, I forget. Not yet, no. I keep oh, I meant to. Interesting. Uh, the last time is I think Cemetery of Splendor was his last release, was it not? Yes, yeah. Yeah. We was looking at doing it then, but it just never happened. I think this might be a better entry point than Cemetery of Splendor. I think Particularly because in the West, there's always been this dialogue, which I find deeply annoying, but it's always been there about whether people just like this stuff because they see the East as being mysterious and exotic. And is he just selling that version of Thailand to Westerners? And no, it turns out that even if you put him in Colombia and give him a a British star, uh, his films still look completely mental. So that's great. Hmm. Yeah, well, try and catch that one. Um. I want to talk about a Netflix TV show. Oh. It's got uh, filmmaking relationships. It's, uh, Benson and me were head of directed a few episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Archive 81. Mm. Uh, this is the first thing I've ever seen which is adapted from a podcast. Right. Um, and I'm not really sure how to understand that, really. It, it, it's bewildering to me because these narrative adapting audio to visual and um, that's kind of a bit of a square hole to get my round peg in. Yeah, that is interesting now you put it like that, yeah. Um, But in this, um, effectively it's about somebody who restores tapes and video. Mm. He's an archivist um, and he's charged with a job by a nameless, faceless company to restore... uh, some videos from a building called The Visit in New York where his dad ended up passing away. Yeah. Related to that incident anyway. 
Um, and so he goes to this place, and I'm, and I'm for one, I'm pretty sure that's not how you restore things. You just take it out of a case and put it in another case, and then press play. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, but I'll, I'll let it off. But um, it's honestly the first thing in a while outside of Mike Flanagan. I think that's his name. Um, mm, yeah, the uh, uh, Doctor Sleep guy. Yeah. yeah, everybody's in love with Mike Flanagan. Uh, Midnight Mass, which I watched one episode, and then the monologuing kind of drove me a little. The distraction right. there yes um but with archive 81 it's this sort of um horror mystery that i, I really can get behind because mm-hmm. it's not about jump scares it's just pure atmosphere and mystery yeah um and it's doing 90s nostalgia in a way which doesn't make you want to tear your face off <laughs> so because that is the thing now, isn't it? That's the new nostalgia. It was the 80s, but now it's the 90s turn. And the clock has ticked over, yes. The the Berlin Wall has fell for a second <laughs> time, and we're back in the 90s now. As two children in the 90s, we can tell everybody that it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it. It's not worth it. But yeah, this is this is a really good show, because um, it just gets that slow burn dread atmosphere down okay. quite nicely and most tv horror doesn't really have time for that it's more about the instant and the visceral yes so yeah i'm liking um, archive 81 so far good on netflix for bringing tv horror back by the way because there seems to be alarmingly little of it elsewhere yeah there was a sky i think sky did a four horror thing right with, oh what's he called now um Oh, was there that thing with Jude Law in the called yeah, the third yeah. day or I, something like that? I think that. that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I can't think of a thing. There's that yellow jacket that everybody's talking about, but I've not I've not seen any of that. No, I mean the only thing I can think of on British Terrestrial that vaguely fits the bill is Inside Number Nine, and that exists because it's very cheap, and they'll let Pemberton and Shea Smith do out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting time for TV horror. Yeah. Very much so. I'm looking forward to what Benson and Mirrorhead do next. I think it played Sundance. It's called uh, Something in the Dirt. I'm always interested in what they do. Yeah. Well, I think you've given me a good lead in there talking about 90s nostalgia because we we do like to bring up sometimes uh, something that we've done as part of our uh, work for the site. And by the time, I don't know whether it'll be by the time this goes out or whether it'll be coming up when this comes out, but uh, the first pop screen of February is Cool as Ice, the Vanilla Ice movie. Oh, there's some 90s nostalgia that just needs to... (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) This is a really strange thing. I mean, I was expecting it to look pretty weird because it's a movie starring Vanilla Ice and that is not something that anyone would have like greenlit for the past 30 years. Um, but it doesn't do justice to how very, very strange this movie is. The only thing I can compare it to is one of those Harmony Corinne movies where okay. there's like a lead character who everyone just inexplicably knows and loves and forgives with every for everything. You know that bit at the end of Spring Breakers where they just commit a gun massacre and walk out? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's just one of those things. That's how everyone treats Vanilla Ice in this movie. He acts like a complete cock from beginning to end. And everyone is just, wow, he's really cool. (laughs) And I suppose there are a lot of pop movies that have that problem. 
but I've never seen one that pushed it to the point where you actually want to talk about Dadaism like in relation to how this feels. And the other very weird thing about uh, Cool as Ice is that it looks gorgeous. I mean, you maybe have to have a bit of sweet tooth for a sweet tooth for sort of early nineties rave era aesthetic to to get the most out of it. It's all mm. neon colours, you know. When they escape, it's to the desert because, of course, it's the desert. Um, but it, it is a remarkably good-looking film, considering that it has no reason to be. And I think one of the reasons why is it's shot by Janusz Kaminski, who went on to be Spielberg's <laughs> regular cinematographer. So wow, cutting his teeth on the cool <laughs> and, and the <laughs> yeah, nah, cool as ice. Wow. It is fascinating to think when you watch Spielberg's West Side Story that you know when Kaminsky captures all those song and dance numbers so immaculately, he's using the tricks he learned on the Vanilla Ice movie. It's kind of similar to um, the next episode on the Patreon is Lee Chang Don, and when you think mm-hmm. of Korean movies, you think they're all gorgeous shots like a dream. Yeah. But like his first movie, Green Fish, it's effectively shot on VHS. It's just so alienating a fact. Right. Really ugly looking film. Like with that weird 90s Hong Kong. You know, you've seen 90s Hong Kong movies. In the 90s in Hong Kong, it feels like the 80s everywhere else. That is it, isn't it? Yeah, because when you look back at 80s Hollywood movies, most of them don't look like that kind of 80s retro look. You can go for a very long time without any pink neon. But Hong Kong, whoa. Forget about it. Speaking of Hong Kong, the other thing I've done, uh, just as we record this today, I've had a release of the Yin, the Samo Hung uh, Wing Chun boxer. Mm. I made a bold claim in that review that I think that um, Samo is one of the all-time great action directors. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to pick a fight. Yeah. Um, he's also surprising. I mean, the, the two movies, uh, uh, Warriors 2 and The Prodigal Son, mm. and the second one, I think, is one of the great uh, martial arts movies, and it's just such a weird thing, which I don't think is really understandable by people who don't watch uh, Asian movies. Yeah. This is a bit midway in, um, well, there's an attempted murder with ninjas in the night, lots of throat slashing, and it cuts to black, and it comes back, and it's got a Samo in his 20s pretending to be a Samo in his 50s, <laughs> giving you stances about taking a shit instead of, you know, doing like martial arts, ma- martial arts-y things. Yes. You've got a daughter called Skinny, but she's not. Uh, Yin Biao punches her straight in the face. <laughs> she's punched, you know, like you're doing a stance, just punch me. So you just completely clobbers her in the face. When I say these things out loud, they sound so bad. <laughs> but. It's that echo chamber, isn't it? The like martial art, Hong Kong movies, that sense of humour. When you're watching it, you think this is hilarious. Yeah. When you explain it out of the context, you think, "Oh my god, I'm horrible for thinking this is funny." <laughs> Every Hong Kong action comedy I've watched has benefited immeasurably from a sense of innocence. I think that even when yeah. they're doing their most tasteless jokes, there isn't anything edgelordy about them. They are very joyful movies. I mean, the, the running gag where it's got uh, people with really big teeth. Yes. That was that was bent out of shape by Hollywood to be quite racist. Yes. Yeah. No, there's yeah, no meaning in it in the Chinese Hong Kong movies. It's just a thing. It's got a sort of Bash Street Kids vibe in that context, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
they're hard films to recommend because they're so singular. Mm. But yeah, I think those two uh, Samar movies. And also, he, he kept his characters kept on getting referred to as fat, and he's not really, not that. It's the no. fat shame in Samar. I mean, aside from <laughs> anything else, you wouldn't say it to his face, would you? No, no, you wouldn't. But yeah, they're, they're two lovely um, watches them, um, Warriors 2. And which Warriors Two, which has like the last half an hour, was just one big fight. Yeah. So if you like that, that's fun. And uh, the Prodigal Son. Nice. I like I say, every now and then we will get a Hong Kong action comedy in. And when I started reviewing them, they could not have been further away from the sort of stuff that I would watch uh, normally. But I don't think I've ever seen one that I haven't enjoyed. Yeah, they're just sort of well, simple fun. Yeah. There's no pretensions to him. Yeah, they're quite nerdy and silly, but yeah, gleefully so. I have rewatched something that I mentioned in my best in the best of the year show, and I just want to flag it up because I think I don't know. It seems to have been missed by a lot of people. There were some things that I put in there that I knew had been underseen and some things that I knew were very big deals. But this is the one where I thought, come on, guys, what are you waiting for? Why are you sitting on this? But Shiver Baby by Emma Seligman. Yeah, I have actually got a movie now, so I could watch this one. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, because I, I rewatched it and it has that quality that a comedy you really love does where you watch it, you think that was good. And then it sort of lingers in your head and you find yourself thinking back to moments and you watch it again and it is like meeting up with old friends again. <laughs> it's not exactly like meeting up with old friends because I would like hate to be stuck in a room with most of these people. <laughs> uh, but to, to sort of voyeuristically look into this world and watch Rachel Sennett's character just wind her life up more and more until it snaps is actually a, a disturbingly pleasurable thing. And it, on the second run, it becomes almost like an audience participation movie. You are just watching there, like, fighting the temptation to scream, pick up your phone, don't leave it in the bathroom. This will go wrong for you. Um but it's really great. I think Emma Seligman has an amazing future ahead of her, not least because I've just read the synopsis for the film she's making next, okay. uh, which I'm delighted to say also stars Rachel Sennett. Uh, it's called Bottoms, uh, and it's about two unpopular lesbian students who decide to lose their virginity before graduation by starting a fight club. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching Shiver Baby, you've won me over to her, to her <laughs> sensibility. I mean, maybe school has changed a bit since I went there, but... <laughs> yeah, it's... A weird one, though. I mean, when I think of modern comedy, there's nothing that really stands out because it's all either gross out or it's been infected by this post-girls, as in the, the, the TV show Girls, this post-girl sort of um, angst. Yes. Really modern comedy that I write really is Bob's Burgers, but that's not. That's, that's got a movie coming out this year, actually. But. It has, yeah. I know what you mean about modern comedy. There's a lot of people trying to make you feel and not enough people trying to make you laugh. And some, some of yeah. those feely comedies I like a lot. I think May Martin's series Feel Good is really good, but um, a lot of them are just 
is this an insightful comedy drama or did you just forget to put the jokes in? Yeah. Yeah, I think the term comedy has been thrown around awfully liberally. Yes. Yeah. But this, the fact that you, that is a, a setup to her next movie suggests <laughs> that she is not one of these people. No. Yeah. I need something to watch after this podcast, so I think I've got a winner. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I'd love to know what you think of that, because, uh, like I say, it's a movie that I'm a bit evangelical about. All right, so that's all we have time for on this episode. So coming up in the next episode, in two weeks, it'll be us two again, talking about John, or oh my word, Waters. <laughs> his parents really knew what they were doing when they gave him his middle name, didn't they? They <laughs> did. Okay, so that's it for another episode. Thanks for sticking with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments on the films we've covered recently, or indeed their makers, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at underscore RJ Simpson or email the podcast at directorsuncutpod at gmail.com. So, yes, that's it for this week. Where else can we find you on the internet, Graham? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Graham W Films. You can find me on Letterboxd just by searching for Graham Williamson. And if you follow me on those, you will get a rolling update on any new articles for Horrified, The Geek Show, etc. that I may do. Thank you very much. And we will see you in the next episode. (laughs) 